kind of crowded up here. These people, it's great. So uh, I noticed Amy is back from Lebanon, right? How long were you gone? Three weeks. So we've, we haven't been in our Roman series in about four weeks, so you missed nothing. No, <laughs> except for Easter and Palm Sunday and Sermon by Jim. Missed a few things. But today we return to our study through the book of Romans. Uh, we'll be in chapter 7 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. But first I want us to think about a, a principle found in Scripture, a uh, number of places, but I want us to uh, examine first the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. No need to turn there, this will be quick. If you've read Joseph's story, or if you've seen the the movie, the musicals, all that, you know that because of, of their hatred and jealousy, his brothers sold him into slavery to Egypt. But because of God's divine intervention, Joseph, uh, facing trials uh, time and time again, he rose from enslavement to become second only to Pharaoh over the affairs of Egypt. And in his position... Uh, second only to the Pharaoh, Joseph was used by God to save Egypt, to save surrounding nations, and, and ultimately to save his family, the, the ones that sold him into slavery, mind you. It's one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it teaches us one of the most amazing principles. Joseph says to his brothers near the end of his life, as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's life teaches us that God can take, God can and and God does take the evil acts of man and, and use them for his good purposes. Certainly, the crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ is the greatest example of this truth. God took the evil acts of those who crucified Christ, the Jews, the Romans, you and I, and use them to bring about our salvation, the salvation of all who would trust in Him. God can take the evil acts of men and use them for good purposes. But on the other hand, man can take the good things of God and use them for evil purposes. Maybe the most common example of this is uh, sexual intimacy. This is an amazing, good gift from God, right? Given by God for procreation, for enjoyment in marriage between a man and a woman. But we've corrupted this gift in so many ways. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, incest, rape, child molestation, and so much more. We've taken the good gift of God and used it in evil and sinful and destructive ways. So we see the truths that God can use evil for good and man can use good for evil. And today, as we return to our series through the book of Romans, we'll see both of these truths. Specifically, how how the law, a good gift from God, has been distorted for evil purposes, but how God in the end uses this evil distortion of His good law for His purposes and to lead us to salvation in Jesus Christ. So now to Romans. And uh, it's been a, a number of weeks, so we're going to need a little bit of a review. We'll, we'll need a, a, little, a little 
Take, take a little bit of time to review. We left off four weeks ago in chapter 7, where in verse 12, Paul writes, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law given by God is holy, it's righteous, it's good. However, as we've seen, as we'll continue to see, we, uh, sin, uses the law for wrong purposes. In our pride and arrogance, we believe that our own efforts to keep the law, and, and this is certainly written by Paul in the context of his, his Jewishness and the Old Testament law, but we use the law, the, the law given to God through our consciences to do the same thing, to do good works. We believe that the law of doing good works will lead to our salvation. And this in many ways is the greatest evil of all. Because it discounts, it disregards, and it devalues the sacrificial and finished work of Jesus Christ. It ignores the gospel that Paul has presented in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 5. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God justifies the ungodly, the sinner, by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of any kind. That we are saved based on Christ's work alone. Nothing of ourselves. As Paul writes in, in Romans 3, the of God has been manifested apart from the law. Before Christ, if, if you wanted to see the righteousness of God, you looked to the, the law, but now in Christ, God's righteousness has been manifested, revealed, seen apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This speaks to the good purpose of the law and the prophets. Uh, that purpose was never salvation. It was to bear witness to the gospel, to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a a propitiation, an atonement by His blood to be received by faith. So Paul, in Romans, has made it clear again and again, that, that salvation is by grace, God's unmerited favor, through faith, through, through trusting in Christ. That, that it's apart from the law. The law is good, but its purpose was never salvation. He goes on to say in Romans 6.14, he's saying this to the church, you are under the law, I mean, excuse me, you are not under the law. You know, if you leave out one little word, it can change the whole meaning. You are not under the law, but under grace. To be under law means you are relying on the law for your salvation. And in one sense, uh, if you think about this, if Christ did not come, humanity, we all would have remained under the law. Only Our only hope for salvation would have been to perfectly obey the law in every detail. But but this is no hope at all. uh, Because in Adam, because we're born in Adam, Romans chapter 5, we've received, we've inherited our father Adam's sin. We're born sinners. We have no hope of perfect obedience to the law and therefore no hope of salvation by the law. But again... God never intended salvation to come through our perfect obedience to the law. The law came through Moses after we were all sinners. God always intended salvation to come by grace through faith. 
Therefore, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who's the only one who ever perfectly obeyed the law. uh, I think Paul says in Galatians, Christ who is under the law, but Christ uh, kept the law perfectly. So therefore, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ come out from being under the law. We will not be judged by our ability to keep the law because we're under grace. We receive, uh, and this is the gospel, we receive divine mercy and forgiveness through nothing we do but only through the gift of God. This free gift of justification being justified, being made right before God, comes not through any kind of law-keeping, but through the sacrificial death of the, the only one who perfectly kept the law, Jesus Christ. But as the next verse, Romans 6.15 says, the truth that we are not under the law but under, under grace might cause us to think, might cause some to think, maybe you've thought this, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? But Paul answers, by no means. He then, in in Romans 6, uh, verse 16, all the way to Romans 7, verse 6, he justifies this answer. He defends his answer. And he gives two illustrations, if you remember, if you were here. First, he uses the illustration of slavery. That we were once slaves to sin, but now in Christ we're slaves to God. We died to sin. In Christ. Therefore, in obedience to our master, we must not continue to live in sin. First illustration, slavery to sin. Second, he uses the illustration of marriage. He says, You were once married to the law. You were under the law. You serve the law. You believe salvation. You relied on the law for your salvation through obedience to the law. But now you died in Christ, and therefore you're released from your marriage to the law, you now belong to another. You belong to Jesus Christ. You're married to Christ. Therefore, based on Christ's love for you and and your love for Christ, you cannot, you must not continue in sin. Now, as Paul made these arguments, used these illustrations against continuing in sin, he contrasted uh, being under the law with being under grace. So, to some... It might seem like he's saying that the law is a bad thing. Anticipating that kind of thinking, in verse 7 of Romans 7, Paul introduces another question. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? But again, he gives the same short answer, by no means. And what follows in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, all the way to Romans 7, 24, is really a defense of the law. And this defense of the law includes an explanation of the law's relationship to sin. That was four weeks ago in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, that we saw the first two aspects of the relationship between the law and sin. First, in verse 7, we saw the, the good purpose of the law, that the law reveals sin. Paul says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Through the law, Paul came to recognize his own sin. And for Paul, the specific law that revealed his sin was the Tenth Commandment. 
you shall not covet. As a Pharisee, Paul uh, thought of sin only in terms of external disobedience to the law. And he was able to discipline himself to obey externally, apparently. But at some point, he saw the internal nature of the law against coveting. And in this way, the law uh, fulfilled its good purpose and revealed Paul's sin. But then, again we saw how sin used the law for evil. In verse 8, we saw how the law provokes sin. But sin, seizing, grasping hold of, setting up a base of operations, uh, seized an opportunity through the commandment, through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Because we're a sinful people, we rebel against God's commands. We want to go where the law says stop, and we want to stop where the law says go. We find joy in wrongdoing for wrongdoing's sake. This is how the law provokes sin in our lives. This is how the law produced in Paul all kinds of covetousness. But we can't blame the law. Proclaiming God's will, that's what the law does. The purpose of the law is to reveal God's will, God's ways. And in so doing, it reveals our inability to measure up to His will and His ways. It reveals our sin. But because of our corrupt, sinful nature, the law now also provokes sin. The sin uses the law for evil purposes and provokes sin. And that brings us to the verses we'll cover today. In verses 9-13, through we see one more aspect of the, the relationship of the law to sin. So, so that was all review. Now we start where we left off. Romans 7, verse 9. And the law, it's the, the, the first point, the law condemns for sin. Well, it's the third point, but it's the first point after the review. This in many ways is the ultimate purpose of the law. We need to seize this. The law was not given to save, but to reveal sin to show us that we're sinners and therefore to show that we're condemned to death and must look beyond the law for salvation. And in verse 9, Paul explains how he came to see his, his own condemnation. This is the, uh, I'm calling it the process of condemnation. He begins by saying, I, I was once alive apart from the law. What does Paul mean by this? When was he apart from the law, and, and how was he alive when he was apart from the law? Paul was a good Jewish boy from a devout family. So he, he knew about the law from a, a very early age. So almost certainly, apart from the law doesn't refer to, to not knowing about the law. It probably refers to a time when, when he hadn't seen the law for what it was. He hadn't realized what the law really required. He saw many external rules that he could discipline himself to follow, but not the internal demands of the law. Thinking back to verse 7, this would have been before he understood the true internal meaning of covetousness. So in that sense, he was apart from the law. But what does it mean that he was alive apart from the law? Paul's probably referring to his own self-perception. He felt he was spiritually alive. He felt he was pleasing to God. He felt he was satisfying to God. He's telling us that this perception of being alive was due to his ignorance of what the law really asked for. 
So first, Paul, at least in his own mind, was alive apart from the law. He was oblivious to the law's actual requirements. But then second, the commandment, the law came. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, this is probably referring to when he first saw his inability to keep the commandment. Specifically, that internal commandment of covetousness. What he means is the commandment, the the true weight of the law came home to him. It fell upon him. He came under what is called the conviction of his sin. He saw the covetousness in his heart. And then third, sin came alive. It was once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. Now this doesn't mean that Paul had never seen his sin before. It means that he became aware of a sin in a new way. He he had an aha sin moment. He realized he was a sinner. He was filled with all kinds of covetousness. And then finally, fourth, he died. I was once alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Not that he at that moment keeled over. But in that moment, he realized he was already dead in his sins. And that he was condemned because of his sins to eternal death, to eternal separation from God. Paul realized the truth of what the Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel. And and, and that it applied to him. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Sin means... Sin brings death. Sin kills. It killed Paul, and it kills you and me. Paul himself makes this abundantly clear. We saw it in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. What we earn by our sin is nothing but death. So in a very graphic language, Paul says, I realized I was condemned to death, that I was dead, formally, I thought I was doing quite well. I I thought I was alive. Because of the law, I was keeping the law. I felt good. Or better than most. I felt good about myself. But then I was overwhelmed with a sense of conviction and, and condemnation. He'd been a proud Pharisee. Sure of his standing before God. I'm a Pharisee, of course. Of course I'm right with God. Until God spoke to him through the law, then Paul realized that he was a a, a dead man walking. And what I want us to see is this. This is a good and necessary thing. As I said, this is in many ways the purpose of the law. To reveal our sin and therefore our condemnation because of sin. Now it seems clear that, that... that this verse is speaking about the process Paul went through prior to his conversion. And I believe this is a necessary process that we must all go through. Our process may not be exactly the same as Paul's, but we all have to come to the same conclusion. Through whatever means God uses in your life, you have to come to the conclusion that because of your sins, you are condemned to death. And so the question is, Where are we, where are you in this process of condemnation? Are you still, uh, do you still have this self-perception of being alive apart from the law? Do you still believe you on your own are doing okay? I'm doing okay. I'm, 
I'm pleasing God, right? I'm living, I mean, compared to them, I'm doing great. Do you still believe you on your own are doing okay? That, that your righteousness is sufficient? That your good works outweigh your bad? I don't know where we came up with this, that that's important. That when you die, based on your good works, based on who you are, based on how much better you are than, than those people, that, that your obedience will earn you a place in heaven. Or, has the commandment came? Have you seen the terrible nature of your own sin? Are you coming under conviction for your sin? Have you come alive to the truth that you not only sin, but that you are by nature a sinner? Which means that there's no possible way for you to save yourself. You're born in condemnation. You're dead. You're under condemnation. Sin has killed you. Have you reached that point in the process? If your answer is yes, then I would say praise the Lord. You're right where you need to be. Because it's only when we understand the true nature of sin and and the condemnation, the consequences of our sin, condemnation, that we will seek a remedy outside of ourselves. Now we're going to look at that remedy shortly. But first, Paul continues to explain this, uh, this process. And, and the second thing he does is he looks at the paradox of condemnation. One definition of a paradox, and there are many, is a truth that is opposite of, of what you would believe or expect. Paul wrongly believed all through his life until he came to that Damascus road, until God convicted his heart. Paul wrongly believed that he would be saved that his eternal life would come through keeping the law. However, the opposite was true. That's the paradox. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Again, Paul's talking about his pre-conversion state before he knew Christ. He knows that God commands, uh, God's commands promise eternal life if you keep them. And Paul, a Pharisee, was trusting in his ability to keep the law. But then at some point, he realized that he, like everyone, has failed. Therefore, the law proved to be death to him. The law revealed his sin and therefore his condemnation. Now again, does that mean the law is bad? No, because the law's purpose was to reveal sin, to help us understand our condemnation. It was not the law that brought his condemnation But as he explains in verse 11, it was sin. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. It wasn't the law's fault that Paul was dead. It was sin's fault. The nature of sin, his own sinful acts. Sin used the law to deceive and through it kill. Sin deceived Paul by convincing him that keeping the law was his way to salvation. Sin sin dangled the law in front of him and says, you can do it, man. This is the way. This is the way to be right with God. I mean, God will not accept you unless you obey these laws. And if you do, He'll love you even more. This is the way to escape death. Sin uses the law, used the law to deceive Paul. Uses the 
law to deceive us into believing that we can be saved by obedience, by good works, by our own efforts. And if we don't break free from that deception, we will remain killed. We'll remain dead in our sins. Now remember, Paul's purpose here is the defense of the law. His deception and death are not the fault of the law. The problem isn't the law, so he he makes it very clear. We've looked at verse 12, we'll look at it again. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But sin comes in and it seizes the law and it kills us. John Piper gives this illustration. Picture the law as a surgeon's scalpel. It's meant for life and for healing. And here comes sin and takes the scalpel scalpel of God's commandments and slashes people's throat with it. It reminds me of a line of one of uh, Michael Card's songs. He's singing about uh, Judas' betrayal of Christ in the garden. How did Judas betray Christ? You remember? In the garden? With a kiss. And Michael Card says, that's not what a kiss is for. The commandment, holy, just, good, was to be life to me. It was to reveal my sin, show my condemnation, and lead me to stop trusting in myself. Lead me to God. Lead me to trust in God for my righteousness. But sin sin took, took that scalpel of the law out of the surgeon's hand, and with it it slashed my throat and it killed me. That's not what a scalpel is for. That's not what the law is for. Paul is saying sin deceived me into thinking the law was for my salvation. And if I'd remained on that path, I would have remained dead in my sin. We need to understand that sin is all about deceiving us. And sin will deceive us in so many ways. It will deceive us into thinking that the law or other things, anything but Jesus will save us. If you're looking to anything but Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then you are being deceived by sin. Or sin will deceive us into thinking that our sins, sin sin will build up itself. It'll say, your sins are so great that God will never accept you. Sin will do its deceptive darndest to keep us away from the free gift of salvation provided by Jesus Christ. And even for those of us who've received this free gift of salvation, sin continues to deceive For some, sin deceives you into believing that all you need Christ for is salvation. That once you're saved, you have no need to obey, to follow, to trust Christ. This is really what Paul's been talking about in many of these questions we've looked at. That you're under grace and therefore you can continue in sin. And if that's the deceit you've fallen into... If you say you believe in Christ but continue to be deceived into sin, then you may be saved by the skin of your teeth. I don't know your heart. But know this, you are not living. I think we think that's the ultimate. If I can be saved by grace and then live like I want, right on. That is so wrong and you're losing so much, you are not living the abundant life that Christ promises. You are, in fact, living as if you're dead. And that's just stupid. But in that way, sin kills us. Other Christians are deceived by an overwhelming guilt for their sin. 
I know this well. For years, after I trusted in Christ, I allowed the guilt of my sin to keep me uh, from relationship with God. I was deceived into thinking that because because of my sin, God did not love or accept me. And so I avoided His presence. Eventually I would return because because he, he didn't let me go, praise the Lord. But I tried to hide from him like Adam and Eve in the garden. And not being in relationship with God for any uh, period of time is a form of death. Sin deceives and it, it kills us. So I'd say, uh, know this. If you're being deceived in any, way, any of these ways, if sin is, is in any way keeping you, this is how you know you're being deceived by sin. Okay, If sin is keeping you, if anything is keeping you from being in relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're being deceived by sin. And know this, today is the day to come out from the darkness of sin's lives and come into the light of the truth of Jesus Christ. Know the truth that Jesus accepts you and Jesus forgives you and Jesus desires relationship with those who trust in Him, especially sinners, because that's all there is. There's no other kinds of people. We all sin. We all fall short. The question is, will we allow the deception of sin to keep us from or to destroy our relationship with God? Or instead, will we allow the truth of God's Word, the grace of God to draw us to Him? There's a beautiful picture in the book of Revelation that speaks to this. Jesus says to the church, to the, to the lukewarm church, to Christians who've been deceived by sin, who've abandoned fellowship with God, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do not allow sin to deceive you into abandoning your relationship with Christ. Know the truth that Christ is always knocking always desiring to enter into your life, to to eat with you, to fellowship with you, to love you and guide you and be with you. But for that to happen, we must, instead of being deceived by sin, we must come to terms with our sin. Instead of allowing sin to use the law to bring our eternal condemnation, we must understand uh, the purpose, really, of the law and its condemnation that it brings. Paul said that the law is good. But the law was used by sin to deceive and to kill. He says, sin deceived me. Sin meant it for evil, for eternal condemnation. But God turns it to good. God uses our condemnation to first, we've talked about this, let's make it clear, to expose our hopeless situation. As we'll see, this is, this is a major emphasis of, of Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 24. In these verses, Paul will show just how hopeless it is for us. How hopeless it is for us on our own to even fight against sin. It's a losing battle. But in verse 13, he begins by showing us why the law is not, not at fault. Why the law isn't at fault for our condemnation. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? Again, he he loves this little three-word thing here. By no means, again. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Sin used the good law to produce death, to produce condemnation. Why? What's the purpose? 
Well, sin's purpose was to deceive and lead us all the way to eternal condemnation, to keep us away from God. But God turned it around. His purpose, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. God wants us to see sin for what sin is. We must see its deception, and we must see its dreadful effects in our lives. And it's through the law that we see just how terrible sin is. How our sin is beyond measure. How we have no hope of measuring up to the holy, righteous standard of God recorded in His Word, in His law. And as I said, this is what Paul will expand on in verses 14 through 24. We'll look at that in weeks to come. How because of sin, we don't even understand our own actions. How how we do the very things we hate. How we love God's law and yet continue to disobey Him. How we're at war with sin. How we are seemingly in a hopeless situation. But that's not the end. Because we're not in a hopeless situation. On our own, we're in a hopeless situation. But our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our ability to defeat defeat sin. I I want us to get a, a preview of what's to come. I want us to jump down to verses 24 and 25. If the law's only purpose, if the good law is only purpose is to reveal and convict and condemn of sin, then that may be fine to show why we deserve eternal hell, okay? But it's really not very helpful to us, right? If the goal is for us to just see our condemnation, then what's the point? But in verses 24 and 25, we see, I believe, the ultimate purpose of the law and the condemnation it reveals. That is to expose our need for a Savior. This is God's end game. This is where God turns it all around. Paul, through the law, has seen his sin. He's been convicted of his sin, and he's been condemned by his sin. He's seen his hopeless situation, that there's no possibility of salvation through keeping the law. He can't even keep the law. He does what he doesn't want to do. And so in verse 24, he cries out, and this should be the cry of our hearts, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm dead. Because of sin. I have no hope in myself. Who will deliver me? Who will save me from the eternal death that awaits me as a sinner? And then the glorious answer comes. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through the law, Paul came to see not only his sin, he came to see his his condemnation, the consequences of his sin. Paul's point is that the, the law cannot save us. That was never its purpose. Its purpose was to show us our need for a Savior. Unless the law does the work of revealing, uh, uh, showing the consequences of our sin, we won't look to Christ. In other words, we need the law to convict and to condemn to convict and to condemn us for our sin, and then we can see our need for or have a desire for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how do we respond once we've seen the reality of our sinfulness and its consequences, our condemnation? Put simply, how do we escape this condemnation that we so justly deserve, that the law uh, says this is what you deserve? 
We've seen our need for a Savior. How do we receive Him? Well, the answer is, is before us here this morning. The answer is communion. It's through communion with Jesus Christ that we're saved from our condemnation. Not through the, this particular ceremony of communion that we're going to participate in shortly. The ceremony is important, but, it, but it's only important because it represents the reality of what Christ did so that we might enter communion, enter into relationship with Him. Not a relationship that we visit uh, one Sunday every month, but a continual relationship that Christ enters with those who put their trust in Him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And this communion, this opening the door to Jesus Christ begins with uh, examination and, and confession. In, in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, Paul, Paul sort of recounts, uh, gives us instructions on receiving communion, recounts how Christ instituted communion. And in verses 28 and 29, he's, he writes, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, without knowing the spiritual reality of what's happening, that, they may, uh, that, that what they are doing symbolizes in a real way their relationship with Christ. If you do that, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. As we enter relationship with Christ, and before we participate in this ceremony of com- communion, we're, we're to examine ourselves. We need to ask God to reveal uh, where we are in, in what we, we call this morning this process of condemnation. Are we trusting in anything, the law, uh, good works, anything besides Christ for our salvation? If so, we need to repent. We need to give ourselves completely to Christ, trust Him alone. We need to ask God to reveal where we're being deceived by sin, where sin is causing us to, to hide from God, to run from God. And we need to confess our sin, asking Him and, and receiving forgiveness for our sins, that that we might commune with Him. I've shared this before, but I I love the the Thai phrase. Christine and I were missionaries in Thailand, and so we learned some Thai, just a little bit. But I love the Thai phrase for communion. Is there any Thai people here this morning? Okay, I can't mess this up, can I? It's piti maha sanit. Piti maha sanit. Piti means ceremony. Ma means come. Ha means seek. And sanit means closeness. So as we come to seek closeness with Jesus Christ, as the ushers and the worship team come forward, take a moment and and go before the Lord in silent prayer. Examine your heart. Confess and repent of your sins. Let's, let's pray. Just pray silently together as the worship team and the, the ushers come forward. Examine your heart. Confess any known sin and begin now to repent of that sin.